here we are, Daniel 11 and 12, which is the end of the book of Daniel. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a little bit sad. I was a little bit sad, actually, because I feel like Daniel has become this great friend, this confidant, and here we are at the end. But you know, I just, that also, I couldn't help but think about the end of the book, and he's speaking of the end of all time, and it just reminded me of a little story, and if you've been in Bible study with me for many years, then I'm sorry, I'm going to bore you because I'm going to tell you the story again, but it reminded me of the story about the lady with the fork. I don't know you know if you know the story, but there was an older woman who was in the last days of her life, and she had called her pastor to come and uh, plan her funeral services with her. And as they went through the planning, she said, and pastor, I want to be sure that when my body for the viewing is displayed, I want to be sure you put, and she pulled out this favorite silver fork she had, this fork in my hand. And he's looking at her and she said, I know you're a little puzzled, but I just want to tell you why. And this is what I want you to say. She said, you know, for all my life, I've been coming to these potluck dinners here at the church where everybody brings their thing. And we sit around and we have a great time. And we eat great food. But at the end, we, we have our meal. And she goes, inevitably, someone goes, now, now hold on to your, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. And she said, what would the best be? I don't know, velvety crumb cake or... Um, caramely pecan pie. It was always well worth waiting for and holding my fork for. And she said, so when people come around and they look at my body and they see I'm holding that fork in my hand and they say to you, what's the fork in the hand? She goes, you just look at them and you tell them, well, because Mabel knew the best was yet to come. And that's our story today. That's what Daniel is telling us, ladies, is the end is coming and it's the best part. Don't miss it. So today, as rapidly as possible. We're gonna go through chapters 11 and 12 and talk a lot and, and I'm giving you a lot of things because where I don't talk, I hope that the handouts I give will fill in some details and just be a good resource. Um, and I'm gonna talk about those in a minute. So three things, I know you're surprised, but we're gonna cover three things out of 11 and 12. We're gonna look at the conquests in military, the contrasts in character between the Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphany, and the conclusion in Daniel's prophecy, those three things. Now, for those of you linear thinkers, you know, A plus B equals C, I'm gonna drive you nuts because uh, we're gonna jump around a little bit. So in point number one, um, as we begin to talk about the conquest in military, I'm actually gonna jump some verses. So again, just note them and don't forget everything that I cover always, all the notes will be posted on the internet, on our website. So, you know, if you miss something, you can always go back and look it up uh, to figure it out. But um, as we start, I want you to keep in mind two key factors as we look at 11 and 12. Um, we cannot forget that there is a battle going on, and it is a continual battle that began at the beginning of time. And that battle is between God and Satan. And Satan ultimately wants to do two things in that battle. Number one, he wants to destroy God's people. And that was initially the nation Israel. They are God's people. But we have been grafted in. We who believe in Jesus Christ have been grafted into that family. We are the adopted sons and daughters. If you didn't make the adoption, foster care, orphan care thing on Saturday, we talked a lot about that, and that's who we are. So um, 
But what is Satan's plan? To destroy God's people, those that believe in the fullness of God as expressed through Jesus Christ. But again, it began with Israel. And we see that in John 10.10. And just write it down and know the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's where we see that. Then the second thing that the... um, that Satan is really attempting to do is to thwart God's plan. So God had a plan in the beginning. And we see him in Genesis come in. And what does he say to Eve? But he kind of starts tempting her with a few things and, and he shows her something. And did God really say? And oh, if you eat that, you will be like God. Because see, he wanted to be like God. And when we read, we can, you can go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and you find that cosmic battle going on between God and Satan, where Satan, you see that Satan's initial rebellion, he was the premier angel in heaven. But he, pride crept in, and he began to want to be God. And that's what led to the revolt in heaven that caused Satan to be cast down. And we see repeatedly in Revelation, I saw, and in Luke, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So we know ultimately Satan's plan now then is to not only be like God himself, but to encourage as many others to take the same line of thinking just like he did with Eve. So keep those two things in mind as we look. And then quickly, let's talk about the conquest in military because the very first 35 verses speak to this. They are looking back at history. And is it not mind-blowing the accuracy with which this is depicted? You can see why the more loosey liberal theologians or scholars would look and say, (laughs) Daniel wasn't written when he said it was. This is too specific, too exacting, down to the marriages between so-and-so and so-and-so. And and this can't, really? I mean, and when you look, it's exactly as it said. So your first, the first thing I want you to do is look at this handout. Because what I tried to do is portray it um, for you in the Kings of Daniel 11. Now, just hold on to it, and I'm going to talk again about it in just a moment. But here's what I want to say. We look here at the conquest historically. Then I want you to also notice in 40 and 45, we're going to look at the conquest of the future. So um, we're going to talk about the past, but we're going to talk about the future, both because they both involve military battles. And here's what we need to know about this. Did you know that since 3600 BC, the world has only known 239 years in that time period without a war going on somewhere in the world? Did you know that since the crucifixion of Christ, a war has been raging every year since? on this earth. Is that incredible? And you want to talk about world peace and have the, I think about that bumper that I see on those cars, you know, world peace, and it shows the, the star of David and the, uh, lots of different symbols. I'm thinking, never. It's, it's not, yeah, co- coexisting. Thank you. <laughs> so um, it's, it's not going to happen until the end. And that's what will set the pedestal up so beautifully for the Antichrist because, you see, he is going to orchestrate a peace treaty. And the world, for three and a half years, is going to say, world peace. Who is this guy? He must be God. That's what they're going to say. It's just the perfect setup. So, keeping that in mind, let's go back and look at the historical wars. So we have in the first 35 verses, the fourth king in verse 1 and 2, he stirred everyone up 
against Greece and Xerxes. He unsuccessfully attacked Greece. He set the stage for a century of war between them. His Hebrew name was Ahasuerus, and we know him, and you read it in your commentary, we know him from the book of Esther and from the book of Kings because we know him as Xerxes, the king that Esther went before. And he was the Persian king she went to. This is who this guy is. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember him. And then you have the mighty king spoken of in three and four. He's the one whose empire was broken up, parceled out to the four winds. And who was this guy? Alexander the Great. And we know at the peak of his power, um, he died. It wasn't taken from him. No one, he died. So he was very, very young and yet died. And, and you have this parceling out to his generals. So four generals received his kingdoms. And we learned that in chapter 7. So we've talked about that before, but we're seeing it in a different way. So then you have going on, you have the king of the north, and, and he is spoken of from 6 right on through 21. These are the Seleucids. They were based in Syria, and that was Syria is north of Israel, if you're looking on a map. So that's who the north is. And when he uses the terms king, there are many in there. There isn't just one, but he's talking about the one ruling that particular land. Then there's the king of the south. These are the Ptolemies. They were based in Egypt, south of Israel. And both of these kingdoms wanted control of Israel. And Israel was the little tiny country uh, meshed between them. And so they, they were continually at war for one another. The prophecy here spans the time from 300 B.C. to 175 B.C. And it includes two failed royal schemes to use marriage for political advantage. And you even see Cleopatra. You're like, whoa, she was even used in there as a pawn to try to unite the kingdoms. And so I think of those movies we've seen, like even 300 or that, that's the period. That is exactly what this is talking about. I mean, go back, run them and go, okay, I see. Remember the Persian king that came in the beginning of the, the 300 and the Greeks that were so um, offended by the way they spoke of women, several other things. And, and then you saw how they fought, brutal, brutal fighting. That's the period we're talking about. So, again, on your chart, let's look at that. So you have Alexander the Great, and you see the four kings that are mentioned. But the breakout in the little um, lavender portion only affects Ptolemy, which took Egypt, and Seleucus. And so I took a little pin and because the other two really have nothing to do with Israel. So we really don't talk about them in the lands they take. The only thing that's focused on in the Bible are the, the, far, the two on the far right. And so what comes down below, that's what's, what uh, he goes over in great detail here, are the different kings. And you see Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy III, then the king of the north in Syria, and who was that? And it all leads us to Antiochus Epiphanes, who's number eight in the um, lavender portion. Again, if you want to get on the internet and do research, it's a great thing to do. But this kind of lets you know these two were going on at the same time, and ultimately they were always warring and fighting, and Israel was stuck between them. All right, so that's what's important. Now, that takes us to Antiochus, Epiphanes, the last one. And let's talk about him. We've talked about him before. Let's go a little bit more in detail here. Be why? Because he is a type not of Christ, but of the Antichrist. And, and he displays certain things. But we really, and, and your commentator, Wearsby, who, um, as you read his commentary, he takes the position that starting in verse 36, we are talking about Antichrist no longer. And the reason is because 
the things that are discussed from that point forward really cannot be traced back in history. We can't identify and tie those, and I'm going to show you that in just a minute. All right, so who is this Antiochus Epiphanes, and what did he do? He's spoken of in 21 through 35. He seized the kingship through manipulation in 175 BC. He poisoned the sitting king. He had his own infant son killed. He murdered the king to cover up his scheme. He planned to unite the unstable empire through the Greek religion, so he uses Zeus, and we see, as a matter of fact, he set Zeus up in the Jewish temple and ended sacrifice as the Jews had known it. So what he was trying to do, his attempt was to unify, and he could care less, he was going to kill God's people. They were in the way. So just like the Antichrist will do at the end, he was known for being ruthless, manipulative. He murdered the Jewish high priest at the time, who was Ananias III, and, and um, was continually frustrated by Jews who didn't want to come under what he was attempting to do. That led ultimately to the Maccabean revolt. And you read about that again, too, that there was a remnant. There always is a remnant of believers, always. And so this great old high priest raises up his five sons and they stood against what the Antichrist was doing and actually on December 14th went back into the temple, took it back, took out the um, defiling elements and won back and that is, this is so cool because we're going into Christmas, that is the celebration that the Jews still do today at the same time we are celebrating Christ, they're celebrating Hanukkah this comes from right here, from them rising up against Antiochus Epiphanes. Isn't that just amazing? It's amazing to me. So that's past. Now, what are the future wars yet to come, picking up in verse 36 to 30, 45, uh, 45? Well, I think we've got a key word, and I really hope you go back when you've got time, and starting in 11, I hope you go back and circle anything that has the word time involved. Because what we see here is in verse 11, uh, 40, it begins with, at the time of the end. So it's now going to fast forward to end time prophecy. But when you go back, you'll see that at least 15 times, depending on how you count them and how your Bible translates them, there is a reference to at the appointed time, at the time of the end, um, at the time, God always has a perfect time for everything he does, and we see that. So who is the king of the south? Well, it's probably going to be the future leader of Egypt, but it'll be an Egypt that's going to be much more powerful than the one we know today because you're thinking, Egypt? Ruler of Egypt? Who even cares about Egypt? What do we even know? We don't even hear anything about Egypt. And so I think there probably is going to be something that goes on there um, that will somehow heighten that, that awareness. And if not Egypt, what is south of Egypt? When you keep dropping down, what, what do you have on the world? Come on, let's get your geography out. What comes below that? Africa. I'm a king. Yeah. Come on, girls. So Africa comes below it, a whole dark continent. And yet there's going to be something going on in there somewhere. So king of that area rises up. He will lead some type of coalition that may include Africa um, and many of the Arab wor world's uh, nations, probably. And think about the Arab nations today. What do they have that would allow them to be so incredible in war? Oil, which is money, money, money. And so he is leading out of this basis of wealth beyond what we can imagine and allows them to fuel a military might that, that we don't really see there now, but it, it's going to be there. And then there's the king of the north. And who is he? Again, who's north of Israel? 
Syria. So probably, though, not the leader of Syria as we know it as a world power. What's north of Syria? If you just keep going up on the world, what happens up there? Russia. I heard someone say it. So there is, and you actually can go to the book of Revelation. You speak of Gog and Magog, and many say that is, a again, a Russian coalition. Hmm. What does Russia have? Latent, kind of buried, not really utilizing well. Oil. And I think there's probably oil in the waters off of Russia that we don't even know about. So oil again is going to fuel something. And somehow with Russia, Syria, something above, there's going to be a marshalling, forces of the north. And then there is this king of the existing world. Because rising up, remember, he starts little, the little horn, and that I... Uh, he, no, 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 I don't want to turn there yet. Um, he's the little horn, and he comes up, and he, and he puts away three horns, and then he rises on the Antichrist, becomes king of the existing world. He responds to the, the Antichrist is going to respond to the above two kings, north and south, and um, he's going to do it with lightning speed, and we're kind of going to not know what even happened. It's something just woo. It's going to be that just whoosh. Modern Jordan, which was Edom, Moab, and Amnon, escapes his invasion. We don't know why, but they escape escape. He will conquer Libya, Nubia, and modern Sudan, and that is going to give him control of the big dark continent at the bottom, which is Africa. Yeah, exactly. So there's going to be reports of further, further rebellions. This is going to alarm him greatly, and so he's going to take military headquarters, and he's going to set them up in the Mediterranean between the Dead Sea, between the Dead sea and the Mediterranean, and that is actually where the Temple Mount stands today. And that's where he's going to make, that is going to be his basis for what he's going to do. And yet with all of this, how does it end in verse 45? I love this. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. For all the fear, for all the, the horror that he will create, he will come to his end and no one will help him. That is so simple. Thank you, God, that you are in control. So this horrific Rain is summed up so simply. And what does that say to you and me? It just encourages me. And it reminds me, I don't have anything to fear. And it reminds me of that verse from John 14, 27. Peace I give to you, my peace I leave. Um, Do not let your heart be troubled or be dismayed. Do not be afraid. That's what we need to know. And then I do want to point out to you, I've given you a chart that has the characteristics of the end times. And now I have to tell you about my great ineptitude on the computer because I messed it up. And I didn't see it till you know, we're laying them out. So turn to the back side of the colored copy. And you'll see in yellow at the top, there are the words Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphanes. And then there's a big a big swath of pink, which has characteristics of end times. Well, behind that are all the words uh, that will compare Antiochus and Antichrist, and I'm going to do that in a minute for you. But I thought on my copy that I had moved it around and you could see it, and then somehow when it printed, the, the pink printed over the yellow. Sorry. So right now, focus on the pink. That's what we're going to talk about. So what are the characteristics? How do you know when the end is coming? We had a question about that. Well, it's right here, and I love that Wearsby gave you scripture. I'm going to give you even additional scriptures. The first thing is there will be a ruler of the world, this guy that's going to orchestrate a peace treaty to usher in world peace. He, who is he? Antichrist. We know who he is. That's all you need to know. He is, he's going to have a name and he's going to come from somewhere, but he's the Antichrist. Make no mistake about it. 
And then he is going to usher in a religion of the world. And it's going to come many people, you know, many scholars actually um, put out there that it will actually be a bastardization even perhaps of the Pope using some, some extremely influential world religious figure that then will be turned to become his religion. So there will be a world religion. That's in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 37 to 39, and 2 Thessalonians. Then there will be a war of the world. We read about it here. It's Armageddon. We're going to talk about it in a minute. There will be a rescue of God's people from Daniel 12 and then from Revelation. We, um, the word is never occurs in the Bible, but in the Greek, as they uh, speak, as you go back to the original languages and look, it's a rapturo, which is where we get, it's what happens, taking out, means taking out, and it's where we get the term rapture of the church. That's what that is. Then at the time when the church is taken out, the believing, living on this earth church is taken out, there is a, a uh, additionally what's going on are those that have died in Christ before will be raised up. Wow, is that not incredible? And you can actually read about that, and I've given you some places. And so together they meet him in the air. Um, we who are living, those who are dead, that's just going to be amazing. Grandma, <laughs> Mama, there you are. That's going to be just amazing, an amazing, amazing resurrection. And together then we, we wait for this time period. Um, but there will be a judgment because at that time, who is the judge for those that believe? Jesus Christ. He's the judge. What does he judge based on? All the things that you've done. Does he get out the record book? What does he judge on? Your trust in him and him alone. And so as Satan begins to accuse, Christ will step in front. The blood, as Todd showed us on Sunday, covers over. No, no. She knows I died for her. My blood covers all that she did. That's what that's going to look like. And then again, there will, be a, there will be an accounting for how we have been lived our life since we've known that. And that is, called, that, is, that is another judgment. Believers at the second coming. Then unbelievers ultimately at the end of time will be judged in the white throne judgment. And of course, when they get out the record books and start running down through all the things that they have done wrong, there will be no one to speak for them. And there will be only one, as you think of a judge eliciting a verdict, there will be only one verdict, and they will be cast out. So, and then ultimately, there'll be reward for those that are righteous. That's what's going to happen. So, the bottom line is, we've got to know right here today in Dallas, Texas, I'm going to go back to my battle, that there is a battle going on. There's a war. It's one of the things that really first attracted Kyle and I to Watermark. Because as we were praying over the summer, we, the folks that were planning to start Watermark, they had several meetings, and we went to a meeting, and Todd explained this this vision that he had. And he said, we want a church full of people that know we're in a battle and we're going to man a battleship. And every one of you has a station and you are to man it and to fight with every and marshal every resource you had. And we're like, that's, yeah, that's it. That's what I want to be. I don't want to be on the cruise ship. I don't want to be thinking about my next meal. Although sometimes I do, but I don't want to. I don't want that to be what I live my life for. I want to be on point and so the challenge for you and I today is to say, you know, that it's not a draft. You're not drafted into his army. You enlist. You enlist in this army. You do because you choose to, because you want to, and it changes everything. So are you marshalling all the resources you, resources you have, your time, your talent, your money for him? 
There will be a battle as well in the end, and it will be fought in the beautiful land. We've read that. We've studied that. It's going to be right there in Israel. And we know this is the battle called Armageddon. The cool thing is we don't have to guess who wins the war. We know. And I've said it before earlier, how is the battle won? I love these verses from Revelation. I already read it to you when we were studying, I think, chapter 7. Uh, in his right hand, he, Christ, held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And we read about that double-edged sword in other places in the New Testament. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance from Revelation 1.16. And then 19, 13, and 15, and his name is the Word of God. And that reminds me of John chapter 1. And if you go to Watermark, that's what we're actually in the middle of a teaching on. The Word was God. The Word and the Word was God, and the Word became God and dwelt with flesh among us from John 1. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's how it's going to be won. Wow. And that takes us to the contrasting character. Second thing, this is um, looking at Antiochus Epiphanes compared to the Antichrist. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but what you need to know is that um, Bible prophecy often focuses on a person or an event and then leaps from that particular thing to a similar event or person. Jesus did this in the book of Luke when he was talking about the destruction of the temple and he was speaking of the, t the real temple that was destroyed in AD 70, but as well he then goes on and jumps forward to the ultimate destruction of earth and all that we know. So it's a, it's a technique that is used throughout scripture. And so that's what is being used here. We're describing a real person, a real thing, but we're using them to fast forward and leap to another point in time where we see similar things. But there are distinctions. What are they? Um, that, again, should have been in the yellow portion of your, but it's not. So it's going to be up on the, on the board right now, and it will be in the notes. But very quickly, what we see, I'm going to run through them. The Antichrist is the king. We know from studying, we already talked about this in chapter 7, that he's probably going to come from a revived Roman Empire. Remember the ten-nation confederacy, the little horn that rises up, takes over three of the, uh, disposes of three of them, and then becomes the great one. That's Antichrist. We're believing that's a revived Roman Empire. And where is Rome in relation to Israel? Directionally, south, east, south, west, north, where is it? West, I heard someone say. It is west, it's not north. See, you didn't know you came to geography today, did you? But here we are in geography class. He will rise up and be above every god. We see that here in verse 36 and 37. He will exalt himself above all gods, 37. He will reject the desire of women, some have said, well, is he homosexual? Mm, I think asexual is probably the better word to say. I, I, I it's just, again, he's, he's not going to be caught up in, in the affairs of a wife and kids. Let's just put it that way. War is going to be his God. It is going to be the end. Where Antiochus Epiphany used war as a means to the end, but it wasn't the end. This guy will live for war. In verse 38, he will come out of the Roman Empire. He will operate at the end of age. Contrast that to Antiochus Epiphanes. He came from the north. Come on, ladies, shout it out. You know the answer. He practiced paganism. He was Greek, remember? I mean, he was living in the Syrian territory, but he was a he was a, a general under Alexander the Great. They, they were, had Greek gods. Who was the highest Greek god? 
Yeah, you guys know the answers. Zeus, and remember, that's who he sets up in the temple to desecrate it. So he sacrifices and worships Zeus. He uses the Greek religion. He, Antiochus Epiphanes, was married. He had a family, even though he murdered his own son, if you can believe it. War was a means to the end. He came out of the Greek Empire, and he operated in ancient history. See the distinctions and the differences? Get it in your head and hold on to it so you are not confused as you read. So once again, we see Antichrist enjoy, enjoys a time of great success. But through all of that, who is in control? God remains in control. And he prospers only until, that's a timing word, until God's appointed time. I love that. Um, and this just reminded me, when I got out of school, I went to work for a bank. And one of the things that we did at the time was we trained bank tellers. Um, I actually wasn't in that realm, but I mean, I, I wasn't a trainer as such, but, but the role I was in, we did some of that. And one of the things, one of the aspects of training tellers was we, a lot then, there, there, you didn't have printers and you didn't have all the stuff we do now with graphics and digital imaging. So there was kind of one way to make a counterfeit bill and it really wasn't a great way, but close enough that people were taken. And so one of the things we taught them was how to recognize a counterfeit bill. And you did that by studying the real thing in detail. You looked at its coloration, its markings, its weight in your hand, the feel of the paper. There was actually a feel of the type of paper used in our currency that is very distinct. That way, the reason we stressed it over and over is that when a counterfeit was handed, there should be no question. I know the real deal. So as I see counterfeit, it should be easy to recognize. And that reminds me repeatedly as I study this, I've sat in a lot of groups and what I hear is, gosh, I hope I recognize him in the end. I hope I'm going to know. I hope I can see it when it's coming. I hope I'm not like the Jews in Jesus' day and didn't recognize it. And here's what I say, ladies, in contrast to the Antichrist stands Christ, get to know the real deal, and you will not mistake the counterfeit. And what do we know? Well, Satan we know masquerades as an angel of light. Second Corinthians says that, no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel. It's not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Wow. Their end will correspond to their deeds, but again, Christ stands in marked contrast. It was Jesus Christ who was devoted to the Father instead of himself. He repeatedly did not bring attention or glory. He wanted to glorify God alone as he was teaching us to do. He gave up his life. No one took it from him. He wasn't cut down. He was, I mean, he was, but they thought they were killing him. He gave himself to them. He gave up his life. Um, he didn't oppress anyone. He is worshiped as the Prince of Peace instead of as a warmonger. So will you recognize him? Get to know him, ladies. Do that through prayer, through meditating on his word, through living with his body. Know every detail you can and you will not be misled. And that takes us to the conclusion of prophecy. Chapter 12 is a transition to the Jewish people themselves. Yes, we can learn things from it. Yes, it is a word to us as well because we are grafted in, but it's very specific for them. So what do we learn about this? Well, the time that's referred to in verse 1 is the time during the events just recounted at the end of chapter 11. That's why really there's no demarcation between chapter 11 and 12. We're continuing right on and then specifically zeroing in 
on the Jewish nation. So we're looking at the time when the Antichrist is wrecking havoc in the world. What does it mean for the Jews specifically? Well, we know who is their archangel. We learned it last week from um, Antoinette. Michael, exactly. Michael is the angel that was sent to be in charge of the nation of Israel. So Michael, we see, will be sent to protect a core of believers that will rise up in this time. The remnant, again, the remnant of Jews who come to... um, We would call that a completed Jew who says, ah, I see the full revelation now. That's what will happen in the end. Michael will come to protect them because of this distress, great distress, distress. In Matthew 24, there's lots of detail about it. I'm going to go through that with you in just a moment um, as I talk about a few additional things. But this is where scholars coined the great phrase, the great tribulation. It is a time the seven-year time period, it is a time that directly precedes Christ's return to the earth. It is so horrific, the end, the latter part of it, the last three and a half years, that do you know Scripture says if it hadn't been shortened, man would not survive. Matthew 24, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those are those who come to belief in Jesus Christ. Those days will be shortened, ladies. So what will happen? The tribulation will happen. And so all from Matthew 24, I want you to be real clear. There will come many deceivers that will come in Christ's name saying they are him. We see that today. We've seen it throughout all time, but it will heighten like you've never seen. There will be wars and rumors of wars, um, nation rising against nation. Again, That's been true since Jesus was crucified. There's not been a year that's gone by that there hasn't been a war. So, okay, tell me something I don't know. There will be famines and earthquakes. Look around. It seems to me like they're they're increasing. I don't really know. But what it tells us is they are the beginning of birth pangs. And if you've ever given birth, you know once it starts for real, not the Braxton Hicks kind, but when it starts for real, you can't stop it. It will... It, the time shortens more and more until, until it comes full-born. And there will be persecution and hatred because of Jesus Christ. If the church has been taken out and then there are those that come to faith, you see they will suffer because of the name of Christ. Persecution. The gospel will be preached to the whole world all the way to the end, verse 14. And then there will be midpoint of this seven-year period an abomination that leads to desolation. That is, the first three and a half years will be this peace treaty that the Antichrist ushers in. And then when he sets up desecration in the temple, which will be rebuilt, there will be a Jewish temple. There's not now. The Temple Mount stands where the temple should stand. So something's got to happen there. But when that happens, Jews will reinstitute sacrifice and he will go in and set up something that will desecrate that And it won't be Zeus that's set up. He will himself stand in that temple and say, I am God. And so when will it happen? That's what will happen. And that is actually, um, wait, I'm going to come to that again. When will it happen? So the time frame, Antoinette took us through the time, the times, the half time. And what we know is that is a year, two years, and a half a year, which all adds up to three and a half years. We get this from comparing scripture to scripture. She took you last week beautifully through the Jewish calendar being 365 days. If you multiply 360 days in a calendar times 3.5, which is three and a half years, you come up with 1,260 days, all right? But mentioned in here is 1,290 days. So where's the 30 go? Let me just talk a moment about that. In Daniel 7, the saints will be handed over him to him for a time, times, and half time. I taught on that. 
Go back and listen if you forgot. Then in chapter 9, Antoinette talked about this. He, he the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant for many, for one seven. In the middle of the sevens, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation. Revelation eleven three. But exclude the outer court. Don't measure it. Because it's been given to the Gentiles. It's you and me. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years, exactly. Or 1260 days on the Jewish calendar to be exact. And I will give poor to my witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days sat clothed in sackcloth. And many believe this is Moses and Elijah um, who you saw at the um, transfiguration and that, that many believe we will see again in the end time on this earth and that we'll die again a death. And Elijah never died. He was taken up. And so that, that we'll die a physical death at that time. And then the beast in Revelation 13, 5 will be given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for four, uh, for 42 months. So there are these additional, additional days. Well, what are they? Um, you get 30, you get 45 when you take 1260 from either of the numbers mentioned. And really, all that means, I mean, there are lots of pontification out there. Some say, well, Jesus is judging everyone in the world. I mean, that's got to take some time from the beginning of time. I mean, so maybe that's what's going on. Possibly. I don't know. Um, some think maybe there's some judgment of, the, of evildoers that have died. Mm, I don't know. There's maybe some rewarding going on um, when he actually goes to looking at the specific things we've done with our life. Some say maybe he's preparing to set up his millennial kingdom. Um, and there's got to be a lot of things that go on with that. Maybe so. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There's some days in there somewhere and he needs them for something. And that just reminds me that we are all on a need-to-know basis. I don't know if you guys remember, but, but um, remember when you were taught about the birds and the bees? A lot of you in here haven't had the great privilege of telling your children about that, but you will. It's coming. And, um, and your children, you only want to tell them what they need to know at the time. And that reminds me of the story of the little boy that comes into his daddy, and he goes, Daddy, Daddy, what's sex? And he's, you know, eight years old. And the dad is like, way too soon what a big gulp and so he launches into this great explanation of where babies come from and the little boy's eyes get bigger and bigger until he finally goes wow I just wanted to know if I was male or female and um you know so whoa too much information at that time you only want to tell them remember what they need to know at the time and you can do that by asking good questions first to figure out what they need to know and that's where we are we're in the period, just what do we need to know? There are things we don't need to know, and God has told us what we need to know. It's right here. And so I've also given you an order of events in the blue section of what will happen. And I'm not going to read it for you, but do read through it. And I tried to give you um, where we haven't already talked about the reference, like from above. I've given you the reference of where you can find it. And so ultimately, you know, we are all on the need-to-know basis, just like Daniel. God has us uh, here for a time, and he says like he did Daniel 12, 13, As for you, go your way to the end. You will rest, and at the end of the days you will rise. He will be one of the dead to rise. You will rise and lead many to righteousness. Uh, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So we can rest and know that just like Daniel, we go about our work. We do what God has us here to do, which is to glorify Him in everything that we say and do, to bring others in along with us. 
to not leave any behind. That's the, is it the Marines? Leave no man behind? I don't know, somebody. So um, God doesn't reveal everything. It's only a partial picture. He's a great and loving father, and he gives us only what we need to know. So the bottom line, ladies, my favorite verse in question two in our lesson when it says, what's your favorite verse? Mine was 12, three, and here's what it says. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those, uh, and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. That's who you are, lady. You, ladies, you're one who's set to be a star shining brightly to lead others to righteousness. So as you head into your Thanksgiving, I don't want you to forget the fork because um, the best is yet to come. That's really what this lesson is all about, is don't give up hope. No, this is not all there is. And as you leave today, and as you sit at your Thanksgiving table, after the dishes are cleared and we're ready to bring out the pot, pecan pie, I want you to pick up your fork and I want you to remember and maybe tell those at your Thanksgiving table, you know, this reminds me of something. Did you know that the end is coming? But that ain't all there is. The best is yet to come. And so for each of you as you leave today, I have a fork. You're going to be given a fork. Put it in your purse. Let it remind you. Don't forget. Every time you pick it up, the, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity here. It is so clear you want us to know. Thank you. Thank you for this. And help us never forget that the end is coming. But it's not the end for us because the best is yet to come. In your name we pray. Amen.